right. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I'm stoked I got a remix week this time. Don't mind a few lessons out, so that's nice. Um, <coughs> I've, uh, I'm just recovering this week from a bit of a, a cold or something, so hopefully the voice uh, holds up for the whole for the whole talk. But <coughs> I hope you're all feeling uh, a little bit, uh, I guess, well-rested this morning. H- who's feeling well-rested? Yeah, a few thumbs up. Um, I know those of you who went on Stormcast, I think it's a solid effort that you guys are here. Um, I remember I went on Stormcast a few years ago, and, and I wasn't leaving my bed for the next 48 hours after I got back. So, good effort. Um, and, and for those of you who, um, whether this is your first time, second time, third time, or you come here every week, um, we're glad that you're with us. Um, welcome. I guess just to orientate you as to where we are at the moment, we've just finished a series at Refresh um, that was called Solid Foundations. Uh, so, we were looking at some of the, I guess, core beliefs um, that we have at Refresh, and I guess the core beliefs that we have as, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Um, and so today we're going to change gears a little bit. This is a bit of a one-off uh, this week and next week. And we're just going to look um, this week at, I think, one of the things that can be an obstacle to us fully investing in a church community, uh, an obstacle to us fully investing in a relationship with God. But I want to start off, I've got this platform, so I'd just like to um, just get a bit of an idea. Who among you uh, watches State of Origin uh, this time of year? A few, a few hands. Who of you, can I just get hands of like New South Wales supporters? (laughs) Feeling feeling pretty happy at the moment. Uh, Good, good to know. Um, I also want to know, like, when you when you watch the game, the, particularly the New South Wales supporters, how do you watch it? Do you watch it on your own? Do you watch it with family, friends? How do you watch it? Family and friends in a group? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, good. I'm glad you answered that way. It is, there is a game on Wednesday, and it's funny you bring that up, because that's why I actually wanted to talk to you about this. I, um, I have a Blues supporter that I'd like to offload to some of you. So every year we get a few family and friends around and it's usually a good time. It's about 80% Queensland. There's a couple of blue supporters that we can just heckle. Um, this year hasn't been so much fun. And this year I've got Brad Marshall. He comes around to our place and he's just remembered, he's just remembered what it feels like to win. Right? So I'd like to, I'd like to offer him up. It's funny that Lauren was talking about puppies. I didn't know that. But would any of you like to adopt Brad into your viewing party? Because we've had enough of him, all right? <coughs> if any of you are interested, um, please come and see me after. I do want to talk to you, though, about how you watch, how you watch State of Origin, or really any competitive event. Um, so you just said, you, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us like to get together with friends and family, but I think there, there would be some of us, though, that prefer to watch sport or, or a competitive, some kind of competitive event on our own, right? And, and I'm probably fall into that boat with some events. I'm okay at State of Origin, watching it with a group, um, but I'm actually more into AFL myself. I, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, d- I do watch a bit of that, and when I'm watching my team play, I actually can't watch it with other people. Um, well, I guess to be more truthful, they can't watch it with me. Because for about two and a half hours every week when I watch the game, I am a ball of uncontrolled emotion, right? Just pure passion. And I'm not, I can't be held responsible for what comes out of my mouth in that time. 
And I guess that's what I want to talk to you about um, today. I want to share a little bit of a story with you. Um, now, my, my partner Ash, her family is also into AFL. They're from Adelaide. Um, and, and I'm from WA, so that kind of explains. We're not as into the NRL. Um, so they, we'd been dating for a little while, and they invited me around. They heard I was into, the, into footy, and they invited me around to, um, to watch a game with their family. And I said, oh, you know, that, that's got to be all right. I'll just have to lock down my emotions, just stonewall it all the way through. So I headed around there, and I thought, because up to this point in our relationship, this is probably a few months old, I thought that I'd done a pretty good job of coming across to them as very laid back, very low key, pretty calm, easygoing guy. That's what I thought. That's the that's the picture of myself that I tried to give them. And I'd been going okay, but I knew that this was a moment where I could slip up. So I, I sort of mentally prepared myself, and I went over there, sat down with them, and. Um, I think it was our two teams that were playing, or their team was playing my team, so there was a little bit of energy in the room. So we get about five minutes into the game, and I'm just all, I'm just concentrating, I'm glued to the screen, like that's how I watch sport, I can't, I'm not really into talking to other people while the game's on, it's just, I'm looking at the screen, if you want to talk, go somewhere else. And I noticed though, out of the corner of my eye, that they're all stealing glances at me, like they're kind of, their eyes are darting from the screen to me. And they're like whispering to each other, and then they're like giggling a little bit. And I'm thinking, what's what is going on here? Like it just felt off, right? And um, anyway, I, I eventually clued onto the fact that Ash had very kindly briefed them on my behaviour when I watched sport, and it was just a big setup. They wanted to see me just lose my mind in front of them. It was a big laugh to them, right? And and eventually, I found it funny as well. Not at first. <laughs> Um, but you can imagine, like, even though we, you know, we can laugh about it now, you can imagine that experience, it changed my whole perspective on that occasion. It changed my whole, the way I experienced watching the footy that day. It's, it's interesting how, like, in social, you know, circumstances where we feel like people are watching us, when we feel like people may be judging our behaviour a little more closely than usual, it's funny how that changes our enjoyment. Now, that, like, that, that story that I shared with you, that's a pretty, I guess, a pretty harmless example of what I want to talk about today. Um, but I think, I mean, I, ho- I hope that we can all think in our own lives, there are certain things, certain character traits we have, personality traits, certain behaviours, things, things that we do, maybe habits that we have that we'd probably really rather people didn't know about us. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you have a, a bad habit, a, a guilty pleasure, a, uh, maybe a youthful indiscretion that you're not that proud of when you look back on it. Maybe, it's, maybe to be honest, it could even be a rumour that you know circulated about you one time that wasn't even necessarily true. But it's the kind of thing you'd rather people didn't know. I just want you to, to picture for a moment how uncomfortable your life would be if, if everyone you met knew about maybe some of your worst moments, some of the regrets that you have. Maybe, maybe don't think about everyone you know, but even just everyone here today at Refresh. How would you feel coming to Refresh every week if people knew about the things that you were the least proud of? Because it's a bit different, isn't it? It's different from everyday people that we meet 
knowing about some of our, our, our less good moments. It's different when church people know about them, though, isn't it? There's a different vibe to that. Church people can be a different kettle of fish altogether. And, and I guess for those of you who call yourselves Christians or church people, if you, if you would put yourself in that basket, you might have experienced the flip side of this. Maybe someone you know had found out you were religious and, and maybe they'd become a little bit wary of you. Maybe you noticed that they became a little bit more guarded around you. Maybe they started apologizing for things that they said or things that they did that they, it was obvious that they were worried that offended you. Well, they never used to apologize for this stuff, but now, now they do because they know you're religious. They know you're a Christian. And like this might not, might not be your experience. This might not be everyone's experience. But I do think that for a lot of people, this idea of, uh, of church or this idea of religion or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, it kind of, it can have this, this perception of judgment that kind of hangs over it or overshadows it. Now, Jason, Jason talked two weeks ago, for those of you who were, who were here, um, he talked about how this idea of judgment um, became fairly prominent in the Christian church and mainly in the Catholic church, um, where, this, where judgment was kind of the focus of religion for a little while, where the whole point of coming to church was to avoid going to hell and get into heaven. And if you were good at it, you could probably get your friends or your family into heaven if you played your cards right as well. And I think a similar feeling, and, and not, not necessarily in the same way or to the same extent, but a similar feeling exists for many people today when they think of church. This feeling of church being a place of judgment and a place of disapproval. So today I, I just want to look at a, a little story uh, in the Bible, <clears throat> in John chapter 8, that kind of looks at this, uh, this concept from a few different perspectives. Uh, and, and I guess I just want to preface this by saying that this story, it may hit close to home um, for some of you. It's a pretty heavy story. Um, but I guess what I want to look at is not so much, um, not so much the behavior specifically that we read about in this story, but, but really Jesus' response to that behavior. Jesus' response to us when we fall short of where we know we should be or, or how we know we should act. So we'll pick it up, uh, pick up the story in John chapter uh, John chapter 8 and verse 2. For those of you who want to look in your Bibles, it should be up on the screen. So it says in verse 2, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. This is talking about Jesus. And it says, The teacher of, teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus bent down and, and started to write on the ground with his finger. So we'll just pause there. <clears throat> so we know the context. Jesus has gotten up early in the morning and he's gone down to the temple, as he often does. He started, you know, people have gathered around him because he's, he's a pretty well-known teacher at this point. So he starts to teach them. And I imagine there are a fair few people there. And in this massive group of people who are learning from Jesus, the religious bigwigs, I guess we'll call them of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, 
the big shots in their church system, bragged this poor woman before Jesus. They've, uh, you know, they've caught her in bed with someone who wasn't her husband. And I guess straight away, some of the details that we, uh, that we read here are a little bit unusual. This would be very unusual to see today, obviously, but even back then, something smells a little bit off about this whole situation. It kind of gives it away in verse 6 where it says they were using this as a trap. This whole scenario is being used as a trap for Jesus, not necessarily for the woman, but for Jesus as well. So I just want to go through a little bit of background on the law that they're talking about here. So we can find that law in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Uh, and it says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's a pretty heavy, heavy law to have. And, and I'm not going to be addressing that so much today, the seriousness of this, of this law and the way that they dealt with punishment in those days. You can see that I just, what I want to focus on, on in this text is that people caught in adultery both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's the law. And the law also required that these people be caught in the act. You couldn't bring circumstantial evidence or innuendo with this law. So that's what's happened in this case. And I guess a question jumps out at us when we hear this story. And a question probably jumped out at the crowd of people gathered there that day. Where's the, where's the man? If adultery requires two people and those two people are to be put to death according to the law of that time why has only one of them been brought before Jesus the whole thing feels a bit off this woman didn't commit adultery on her own but here she is dragged before Jesus on her own to face the consequences There's a real drive among these religious leaders to humiliate this woman. They made her stand in the middle of this massive crowd and brought all her dirty laundry out in front of the whole crowd, in front of Jesus. The whole thing is set up to persecute her, to prosecute her, but they're protecting the man that she was with. Why would they do that? So they put this woman on, tri on trial in front of Jesus to test him, to bring a charge against him. And, a and there are some manuscripts, or some early manuscripts or records of this story that I guess indicate, and some people have, some scholars have said that it's possible that the whole thing was a setup. So they lured her into temptation. That even, maybe even one of the men that was there participated in setting her up in this trap. Now, I don't know whether that's, you know, it's too hard to say from this text whether that's true or false. But it's clear that this, this happened by design. So when we think about the trap that they set for Jesus, the, trap the strategy that they had basically went like this. If Jesus agreed in this scenario that this woman should be put to death, as the law of Moses said, then what he would be doing would essentially contradict everything that he had taught people up to that point. He'd be contradicting everything he's taught people about love, about mercy, about forgiveness and understanding. But more importantly for these religious leaders, if Jesus agreed that this woman should be put to death, he would, be, he would come into collision with the law of the Roman people 
at that time. Now, the Romans were, were, at the time that Jesus lived, the Romans ruled over the Jewish people. And according to Roman law, it was illegal for a Jewish authority, like Jesus, to order someone to be put to death or to order people to carry out a death sentence. That wasn't allowed. Jewish people weren't allowed to make that call. So if Jesus ordered this woman to be put to death, as the Jewish law stated, he would be breaking the Romans' law. However, on the other side, if Jesus decided to show this woman mercy and he ordered the people that were around not to put her to death, he'd be, he could be accused of condoning, maybe encouraging, or at the very least allowing people to get away with breaking the Jewish law, the sacred law that, that all of the people surrounding him held so dear. It was a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Jesus. And that was the trap they wanted to get him in. He had to choose between breaking the Roman law or breaking the Jewish law. So in verse 6, Jesus' response, it says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman still standing there, or with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, who's impressed by that response from Jesus? He's in a tough situation. That, that, that's a no-win situation. That's pretty impressive. I guess it's just a side note. That, that line doesn't work in every scenario. I've tried that line out at home. I remember one time, I just heard this story when I was a bit younger, and I, was, um, I put my cricket bat through the wall, and um, Dad comes to dole out a little bit of discipline, as is his right, and uh, I thought, oh, I'll try this line on. And uh, so I said, Dad... Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, you can probably imagine how that ended for me. I, uh, I didn't get any stones thrown at me, but Dad nearly made another hole in the wall with my head. So it doesn't work, it doesn't work for everyone at every time. But this still leaves some unanswered questions for us. I mean, the biggest one for me is, well, what was Jesus writing on the ground that day? When, the, when they were pestering him with this, with this dilemma, what, what did he, why did he bend over and write in the dirt? And what was he writing? It doesn't say in our Bible, does it? Apparently, there are some records, some early manuscripts that suggest, or at least imply, that he may have been writing down the sins of the men that accused this woman. And that would definitely fit with what happened next, how the men, how he stood up and said, if any of you is without sin, cast a stone at her, and they all slowly drifted away. That would make sense, but unfortunately we don't have that in our Bibles. And whatever he wrote down, whatever it was, it's clear where he stood on this issue. And that's, I think, what, that's the important part that I want to take away from today. So I've got a question for you. 
in this story, could you put yourself in the position of one of the characters? Who, who would you identify most with in this story? Who have you identified with in the past? Who have you been, metaphorically speaking? Because I think all of us at one time or another can identify with, with one or more of the characters in this story. Probably hasn't been in such a dramatic fashion, but I'm sure that maybe you or someone you know may have felt like this woman at times. Maybe at the very least, you or someone you know has had this, this sort of uncomfortable impression that, that church people, I use that word pretty loosely, church people, look at you with judgment over some of the choices that you've made or the life that you've chosen to lead. And maybe it stopped you, or it stopped someone you know, from really wanting to invest or engage in a church community. I mean, if we think about this woman, we couldn't really blame her if she never wanted to see another church or another temple or another religious setting ever again. That'd be pretty understandable. If this has been her experience with church, why would she ever want anything to do with it? But I think if we look not so much at how the religious leaders treated this woman, but instead at how Jesus responded to her actions, let's look at what we find. Is Jesus' default response to people, Jesus' default response to us, his first reaction is one of sympathy, is one of, is one of pity, one of understanding and one of forgiveness. That's, he wants to understand us and he wants to forgive. That's his first response. But if we leave this story thinking only that, then we've only got half of his response. Because he doesn't leave it at that. He didn't leave this woman with that and he didn't, doesn't leave us with that either. He gives this woman a second chance. But that doesn't mean that he's happy for her to go on living dangerously making destructive or selfish life choices. So for those of us who have at one time or another felt like this woman, I think Jesus is really aching for us to get two messages from this story. And the first is that we, we can't afford to let our mistakes, our regrets, our past behavior keep us from starting a relationship with Jesus. We can't let it keep us from engaging in a church community because Jesus has done everything in his power to remove that obstacle for us. He refuses to let us use that as an excuse. He's forgiven us for those things already. But the second is that we can't have life both ways. Now, for those of you who were here, I think it was last week, Jason um, went through a text from Revelation. I just want to throw it up um, for the rest of us, or for if you've kind of zoned out, which is fair. Uh, Revelation 3. Verse 15. So it's up on the screen. It says, I know your deeds. This is God, and, and he's kind of talking figuratively here. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. 
And then he finishes, well, finishes this section by saying, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So here, who's God speaking to? Well, he's speaking figuratively to those of us who have one foot in the world and one foot in his kingdom. And that's what Jason spoke about last week. He's talking to those of us who, who think we can have a relationship with God without giving up some of the selfish or the destructive behaviors that really keep us separated from him. He's saying at some point, we're going to have to choose between one or the other. And back with this woman, Jesus summed it up as simply as, neither do I condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. So look, maybe, maybe you at times have felt like the woman in this story. Or maybe you know someone who has reservations about church because of the kind of judgment and the kind of criticism that this woman experienced. But if not, there's just as important a lesson for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. Those of us who maybe are at risk of giving this impression to other people. Because this impression that, that church can be a place filled with, with judgmental and vindictive people, that, that idea didn't come from nowhere. And you can kind of understand people having that impression because Christianity, it's a religion and it does involve a lot of, a lot of talk on morality, on right and wrong. There are some pretty clear-cut Christian views on what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus doesn't ask us to apologize for, the, for those views. He doesn't ask us to ignore them or downplay them. But what Jesus is reminding the men in this story, the religious leaders in this story, and what he, he reminds us is that we have at one time or another all struggled like this woman. We've all acted selfishly, impulsively, maybe maliciously. Every one of us has struggled with sinful, and I'll use the term sinful, but you can replace it with destructive or even just counterproductive habits and behaviours. And that's why Jesus... Jesus never asks us to judge other people. He never gives any indication that that's our job. In fact, there are so many examples in the Bible of, of where Jesus warns us against it. Instead, he gives us a different job. Our job as Christians and, and the job of those religious leaders in that day was simply to showcase how fulfilling a life following Jesus or following God can be. Showcase how fulfilling that life can be. Showcase how following Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. And the second part of that is to, is to constantly be reminding people, either through your words or your actions, that that life is available to them. Because wouldn't it be great if, if people walked into Refresh for the first or the second or the third time and instead of having that kind of background feeling of nervousness or of being wary or feeling maybe judged. How good would it be if they walked in feeling confident because whoever invited them to Refresh, however they heard about Refresh, that person made it clear to them that when they walk through these doors, they're not joining a group of, of saints who look down their noses at other people, but they're joining a room full of sinners just like them. A room full of sinners who've been saved by Jesus. So I guess I'd just like to leave you with this. 
for those of you who feel, who feel caught at, at times between your interest in a relationship with Jesus on the one hand, but this fear or this feeling of being judged or, I guess, persecuted sometimes by people who claim to be Christians, people who are supposed to represent Jesus, I guess I want to remind you that Jesus has already forgiven you for the choices and the behaviors and the habits that you regret. And he refuses to let those things that are in the past stop you from entering into a relationship with him. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that, that the rest of us really are in the same boat as you, or at least have been in the same boat as you before. So what right would we have to judge you? And I want to challenge you, if you, if you feel like that woman, if you know the actions that, that are keeping you from happiness, if you know the actions, the habits, the behaviors that maybe are keeping you from a relationship with God, if that's what you're interested in, if that's what you're chasing, then I want to challenge you to start the process of, of leaving your life of sin, as Jesus put it to that woman. Now, for some of you, that, that story may not resonate uh, with your personal situation right now. But I, do, I want you to think about whether it might for someone that you know. Could someone you know be struggling with the direction that their life is taking them? If they are, it's very possible that church is the last place that they're looking to turn. You may be the only hope that God has of reversing their perception of church people. So my challenge for you is simple. First, I just want to ask you to pray for those people. Pray for those people in your life. Pray for people in that position. And then with God's help, I, I want to challenge you to showcase the benefits of living life as a follower of Jesus. And then do everything in your power to show people that you come across and especially anyone that's brave enough to walk through these doors or talk to you, ask you about your relationship with Jesus. Show them that, that this place isn't full of saints looking down their noses, but it's full of lost and broken lives that Jesus found and turned around. I'll just ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. Hey, Father God, um, I think we're all here this morning on some level because we have some interest in knowing you, some interest in connecting with you. We all may be at different, on different journeys, but we just thank you so much that you're also interested in knowing us. I just want to pray uh, for everyone here that, that we might um, showcase the benefits of a life following you to the people that we meet. And for those of us who may be struggling um, and may be living with regret, I just want to pray that, uh, that you will lift that burden. Uh, we thank you for loving us. Uh, in your name, amen. Uh, next week we've got uh, Michael Petrie. Oh, Lauren can come up and do the announcement. Uh, we've got Michael Petrie, so he's just come back from Storm Coast, so he's got a lot on his plate, but thank you, Michael. I'm um, looking forward to it, and uh, yeah, we hope to see you then.